Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We publicly thank Dr. Aiken for the gracious invitation and the kind words of introduction. It is a great joy to be here with you this morning. I praise God for all that he is doing in this school, and it's just a joy to be among you today. Would you take your copy of the Word of God and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew? I want to quickly breathe a prayer to ask God's help that we might both speak faithfully and hear clearly his word, and then I would read to you the final verses of Matthew chapter 28. We do praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. In his name, we ask now that you would open our understanding that we may comprehend the scriptures. Please help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander, so that as newborn infants, we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby, having tasted of your goodness. Grant me, I pray, physical strength and spiritual energy to speak the word faithfully and clearly. Guide my thoughts and govern my words, and we pray that you would receive all of the glory as your word is proclaimed today. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse number 16. Hear the marching orders of the church. The marching orders of the church. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. In the 1940s, the United States ship line proposed to build a new ship that it would call the SS United States. At a close to $80 million project, it was going to be the largest ship ever created in America and the fastest ship in the world. The United States government, upon hearing about the project, invested $50 million into the building of this new ship. It was the government's plan to use this ship as a troop carrier that would be able to transport some 10,000 troops into battle if necessary in the time of war. In 1952, the SS United States finally set sail, but it never set sail as a troop carrier. 
It set sail with plans of fast transatlantic travel, and it carried that out, breaking records for transatlantic travel that stand to this day. But it was never used as a troop carrier. It made history instead as a luxury liner that catered to wealthy patrons. It finally had its last customers in 1969, and since 1996, the SS United States has been docked at Pier 82 on the Delaware River in Philadelphia, where it is still a popular tourist attraction. In the succeeding years, it has changed ownership several times. It is decaying, and really no one knows what to do with the SS United States. Brothers and sisters, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 is a simple reminder to us that the church is a troop carrier, not a luxury liner. The church is a war vessel, not a tourist attraction. We are on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, and the last command of Jesus must remain the first priority of the church. By the time you get to this final paragraph of Matthew's gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus have already taken place. All that is left for Matthew's gospel to report is the promised post-resurrection reunion between Jesus and his disciples. There is a summary report of that meeting in verses 16 and 17 of the text. Now the eleven, Judas excluded, disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then in verses 18 through 20, when Jesus approaches the disciples, he issues what we commonly call the Great Commission. But I want you to feel the tension between the setting of the Great Commission in verses 16 and 17 and the statement of the Great Commission in verses 18 through 20. Picture the scene, if you will. The disciples are waiting on some unidentified but pre-appointed Galilean hillside when they see the resurrected Jesus approaching them. And when they see him, they fall on their face prostrate in worship. But in verse 17, Matthew notes that as they worshiped, some of them did not actually believe it was truly Jesus. Some doubted. Yet Jesus continued to approach them and entrusted to them his mission in the world. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me like a great way to start a worldwide movement. Yet here's what we find that Jesus used weak, sinful, finite men, or if I could try it another way, people like you and me, to be his messengers in the world with no money, with no programs, with no buildings. He charged these men to be his witnesses in the world. The early church took this mission so seriously that in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, we are told that when they arrived in the city of Thessalonica, the locals said that the men who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. 
And I stand and declare to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ still has the power to turn the world upside down. And the Lord Jesus Christ is still willing to use weak people like you and me to be his messengers, his witnesses, his heralds in the world. But we must be on mission. We must not lose sight of what the Lord Jesus has called us to be and do. We must ensure that in our generation, the Great Commission does not become the great old mission. What does it mean to be on mission for Jesus Christ? First, believe the claim Jesus makes. Believe the claim Jesus makes. The Great Commission begins in verse 18 with a bold declaration of the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the record, verse 18 is not a commission, it's a claim. But the commission rests on the claim. If verse 18 is not true, verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. The Great Commission begins with the declaration of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus indeed has all power. But what he claims here is more than mere power. Power is the ability to get things done. Authority is jurisdiction, freedom of action, the legal right to use power. That's what Jesus claims here. Not just omnipotent power, but sovereign authority. In the sports world, the great athlete has the power to move the ball down the field or move the ball up the court, but the referee has the authority to restrict or penalize or disqualify the athlete's power. The athlete has fan support, great skill, and a shoe contract. All the referee has is a whistle. But the authority of the referee trumps the ability of the athlete. And the authority that the referee has in the sports world, Jesus claims over the entire universe, except no protest, no instant replay, and no commissioner's ruling can overrule the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice the scope of this authority. One word, all. I am tempted to list the usurpers, the authority of Jesus conquers, but suffice it to say that if Jesus has all authority, no one else has any. And note the sphere of his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. In heaven is about more than heavenly bodies. It's about spirit beings. Both Michael and his army of angels and Satan and his army of demons must submit to the authority of Jesus. 
And on earth is about more than land and sea. It is about people. It is about people groups. It is about people regardless of race and location and status and background and ethnicity or religion. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says to the disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here in Matthew chapter 28, we have one of the great Christological statements of the New Testament. This is an unmistakable claim of deity that permits no middle ground. When Jesus says here, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, you can't walk away from that and simply conclude that he's just one of the prophets. Either he is a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord of all. And our mission in the world begins by simply believing the claim that Jesus makes, that all authority, in fact, is his, has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Jesus here declares that the heavenly Father has given him power of attorney to execute divine sovereignty at his personal discretion. In Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 2, verse 8, the Lord says to his anointed, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your possession, the ends of the earth as your heritage. Here, Jesus declares that that prophecy is fulfilled in him. All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me. Or as one writer says, that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human experience where Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. Well, I tell the brothers, the church I serve, that if you have to walk around in your house declaring, I'm the man of this house, it probably means that you are not. <laughs> Is that the case with Jesus? He proclaims all authority, but is that true? One will easily conclude that's not true when you look around the world but I submit to you, friends, do not question the claim of Jesus based upon the breaking news of the day. The proof that this claim is true is that Jesus lived to make this claim. Read the previous chapters. Jesus was betrayed and arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced, beaten and crucified, but God raised him from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28 verse 18 is in fact a declaration of war against all of the enemies of Jesus. Every eye shall behold him one day, including those who nailed him to the cross. 
In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul declares that there was a time of ignorance about who God is that he overlooked, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed to do judgment on his behalf. And he has given assurance of this to all men by raising his appointee from the dead. The risen Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And the first and most pressing question then in considering the Great Commission is a personal one. How are things today between you and the Lord Jesus? We must believe the claim Jesus makes, but secondly, we must obey the commission Jesus gives. Verse 19, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The singular imperative of the Great Commission is to make disciples. A disciple is a follower. He would follow the rabbi to be with him and thus learn from him and as a result become like him. Having graduated from rabbinical school, one could technically begin his own school of disciples, but that is not the license Jesus gives his disciples here. On graduation day, Jesus bids them to go out and make disciples for him. And this is the assignment of the church. We're to call lost people to repent of their sins, to run to the cross and trust the blood and righteousness of Jesus for salvation from the wrath of God to come and to follow Jesus as the Lord of their lives. This is not just a call for a select few. Every disciple is to make disciples. Faithful disciples make disciples. What does that task look like? First, we make disciples by going. The first word of verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I, I like that. The first word of verse 19 is the word go. That's appropriate. You got to spell go before you can spell gospel. Note here that Jesus does not tell the world to come to the church. He is bidding the church to go to the world. We're to be a going church for a coming Christ. But here, go is not a command as if they would be sitting on the hill otherwise if he did not give the command. The, the call to go modifies the, the command to make disciples. Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. And the point here is that disciple-making is to be the Christian lifestyle, not a ministry selective. As you are going, make disciples. It is a task as small as your neighborhood and as large as the billions of people in the world, many of whom, as we heard earlier, have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. But verse 18 demands that we take this saving message to the nations. 
Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says that in heaven they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We make disciples by going. Secondly, we make disciples by baptizing. We make disciples by baptizing. Verse 19, and Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is clear, friends, that baptism is no man-made tradition that you can reject at your discretion. Jesus commands that after you make disciples, you mark disciples by immersion in water in the holy name of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The call to baptism is essential here by the command of Jesus. For in a real sense, baptism is a Christian act of civil disobedience. It is our pledge of allegiance to the kingdom of God. In baptism, we identify ourselves with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our statement of commitment to Christ and his church and his cause. Of course, baptism does not say but it is the first act of obedience of those who have been saved by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, no male or female, but we are all one in Christ. Here, this call to baptize reminds us of fresh friends that the mission of Jesus cannot be accomplished by sheep stealing, saint swapping, membership transfer. God wants lost people to be saved. God wants the dead to be raised to new life. God wants the lost sinner to be born again. We are not in competition with one another. We are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pastored in Los Angeles for many years, and when I would travel, one of the first questions I would always get is, are there any celebrities that go to your church? And I would answer all the time, yes, one, Jesus. It is not about us. It is about pointing lost women, men, boys, and girls to the only name that matters. A tour guide walked a group of visitors through a historic church edifice, pointing out the beautiful architecture, the historical events that took place there, the great dignitaries who had come for worship in that place. And after a great presentation, the guide confidently asked, are there any questions? To which an old lady in the back raised her hand and asked, when is the last time someone's been saved here? And ultimately, that is the only question that matters. 
You may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. The verse of that hymn I like says, you may seek earthly fortune and fame. The world might be impressed by your great name, but soon the glories of this life will all be past, and only what you do for Christ will last. We make disciples by going. We make disciples by baptizing. Going into verse 30, 20, that is, we make disciples thirdly by teaching. In the real sense, becoming a disciple is an event when one repents of his or her sins and trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but it is not just an event, it is a process. In the real sense, it's a threefold process. We bring the lost to Jesus in faith and repentance. We bring the new convert into the church through the symbol of baptism, but then we are to bring them to maturity by faithful Christian teaching. The conversion process doesn't end with baptism. It is just the beginning of a lifelong process of conversion that consists of primarily one essential act. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Man-centered worship services, therapeutic preaching emphasis, and pragmatic ministry philosophies may consistently draw crowds, but they won't make disciples. Disciple-making requires faithful, biblical teaching. And if there's anything worse than a church that does not teach the Word, is a church that teaches the Word selectively. But note that Jesus says here, you are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, we don't have editorial authority over the script. We must teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. And because it is all inspired by God and all profitable, we're to teach them to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded. I hope to end my ministry the way Paul ended his ministry. In Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, he says to the Ephesian elders, I want you to know that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Uh, paraphrased, if y'all die and go to hell, it's not my fault. I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I did not hesitate to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. But don't just teach it so that people will know it. Teach them so that they may do it. Notebooks full of biblical information doesn't make true disciples. He says, teach them to observe, teach them to obey, to practice, to live, to do all that I have commanded. James 1.22, right, says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So the lady was cleaning dishes from lunch. 
And she looks out her window and sees her 10-year-old neighbor, as typical, running out of his yard into her yard up the back to see if there was any goodies he could steal. But that morning, her husband had repainted the back steps, so she hollers through the window, Johnny, don't come this way, go around front. And, and without missing a beat, he just kept charging forward and yelled back to her, don't worry, I'll be careful. Knowing Johnny, she said again, Johnny, the steps are wet, don't go this way, go around front. Without missing a stride, he kept going and said, I'll be careful until as loudly and as firmly as she could. She said, Johnny, listen to me, stop. Don't go this way, go to the front door. I don't want you to be careful, I want you to be obedient. You cannot become a mature and faithful and fruitful disciple of Jesus Christ if you are finding ways to be careful in disobedience. You must observe, practice, live, do, obey all that he has commanded. Believe the claim Jesus makes. Obey the commission Jesus gives. But thirdly, to be on mission is to embrace the comfort Jesus shares. The late G. Campbell Morgan visited an elderly sick member, read to her Matthew chapter 28 in its entirety with the closing verses of this chapter. When he finished, he closed his Bible and prepared to pray. He looked down at the dear sister and said, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? She says, it is not a promise, it is a fact. And she was right. Jesus does not promise, I will be with you. Jesus declares, I am with you. Before you go, know that before you even go, I am with you always to the end of the earth. We carry out the mission of Jesus with the assurance of both his personal and perpetual presence. We have his personal presence with us. I am with you. This assurance make up the bookends of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1, 23 says, and a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And now Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus, the Emmanuel, declaring, I am with you always. This is not the first time he assures the disciples of his personal presence. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, he says, where there are two or three gathered together in my name, in that context of church discipline, I am there in the midst. He says, I am with you when you gather together. But now he declares, I am with you as you go out. I am with you. What good news. We carry out our mission, friends with both the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. The omnipotent one of verse 18 is the omnipresent one of verse 20. The sovereign Lord is also the intimate Savior. We go forth in the world carrying out our mission with the assurance that not only is divine sovereignty on our side, divine sovereignty is by our side. I am with you. 
But it is not just his personal presence, it's his perpetual presence. There are four all-inclusive statements here in the Great Commission. First, Jesus declares in verse 18, he has all authority. Then in verse 19, he bids us to make disciples of all nations. Beginning of verse 20, he bids us to teach those disciples to practice all that he has commanded. And now he closes by assuring that I am with you always or all the days. We not only go forth in our mission with the personal presence of Jesus, but with the perpetual presence of Jesus. What hope, what comfort, what joy this gives us wherever the Lord would assign you to be his witness, his message, his herald, he declares, I am with you. You are not in it by yourself. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Isaiah 41 and 10, do not fear I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hebrews 13 and 5, keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The church I grew up in, they would sing, I've seen the lightning flashing, and I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sins, breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus telling me to fight on, to preach on, to serve on, to pray on. For he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning, for its truth, its wisdom, its authority. Would you, by your gracious help, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power, help us to believe this claim Jesus makes by the authority of his blood and his resurrection and his name. And help us to give our lives to this mission that Jesus has given. And help us, even when we find ourselves in a difficult, dark, dangerous place of assignment, to embrace the comfort you give, that you are with us always. We praise you for it. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. 
We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.